Uh, it's my honor today, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce our speaker, David Lemoyne. Uh, David uh, is in our um, men's group when he can Great with job. his work schedule, and I so appreciate his spirit. And uh, I think it's been about six months since he was up here. I still remember what he talked about, unforced rhythm of grace and his love for the Chinese buffet table. That's good. That's right. I still remember it. So bless you, brother. Two most important things. Absolutely. Good morning. It is a privilege to be here uh, with you uh, on this wonderful Sunday morning. <clears throat> Let's go to Lord in prayer before we jump right on into the text. Before we go to prayer, the title of this morning's message is, I Won't. I won't. And I'll be reading from the text of Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verses 20 through 22. The key focus point of this morning's message will be verses 31 through 35. We'll close out with verses 57 and 58. I apologize for not having a wonderful, dramatic PowerPoint presentation this morning, but I spent this past week down in the Outer Banks on vacation. I have four small children, so it's like herding cats on the beach and going to the restaurant and things of that nature. So I'd like to have had that for you this morning, but I don't. I apologize. So we're going to go old school this morning. We're actually going to open up our Bibles. Again, that's going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 and 22, 31 through 35 will be our focus. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to give you glory, to give you honor, to give you praise. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in song. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you with your word. We pray, God, that you would be present, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that every man or woman or child may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it's to that end we're here this morning. Before we jump into the text, I want to go back to that Lord's Supper. It's Jesus gathered around with the Big 12. And we know that when Jesus and the Big 12 got together, in fact, that we know that whenever 13 men get together, there's going to be some deep, deep, deep conversation in a hurry. I can only put myself in that particular position. I start thinking, you know, John, why is the neighbor's lawn so much greener than mine? Are they using Scott's or some other brand? Somebody else sitting at that supper table would say, you know, boy, A-Rod's batting 314, highest batting average for the Yankees, took a year off. I bet Cashman is eating pie right about now. Or somebody might raise up, how about those Red Sox? They're off to a great start. Deep. Deep conversations take place when you get 13 men sitting around the table with a cup of coffee and a ribeye and a baked potato and a salad. So you can only imagine what the discussion must have been this evening. And then it gets quiet, and Jesus, the last person in the room that you really want to speak, you know, the spiritual guy sitting over in a corner that's really quiet, he really knows how to close down a party in a hurry. He says, by the way, one of you is going to betray me and turn me over to my conspirators. 
Wait, we were talking about lawns and Red Sox and Yankees and Tiger Woods and the Masters, and this guy wants to bring up that one of us is going to betray him and turn him over to the conspirators? And it was quiet. And a hush fell over the room, and one by one they asked themselves, Surely not I, Lord. It could possibly be me, Lord. It's not going to be me that betrays Jesus. No, it's not going to be me. Maybe it's him. But it's not going to be me. Surely, Lord, it's not going to be me. And then we move to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is weighing the will of his heavenly Father. He is praying and he's asking God if there's any other option, if I can take the left lane as opposed to the right lane. Is there any way around the cross? And the heavenly Father says no, and Jesus is wailing and weeping to the extent the distress has brought drops of blood to the soil in front of him. And we pick up the passage. Then Jesus told them, before the night's over, you're all going to fall to pieces because of what happens to me. There is a scripture that says, I'll strike the shepherd, helter skelter, the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, your shepherd will go ahead of you. They missed this part. Your shepherd will go ahead of you, leading the way to Galilee. Peter broke in. Peter, impulsive. He broke off Jesus' conversation and he says, even if everyone else falls to pieces on account of you, I won't. Even if the other 11 fall apart, Jesus, you can count on me. I'm Peter. You can count on me. I won't. And Jesus says, don't be so sure. This very night before the rooster crows up the dawn, you will deny me not once, not twice, but three separate times. And Peter, in his humility, protested against Jesus, and he said, I would never deny you. Even if I have to die for you, Jesus, I will never under any circumstance ever deny you. Jesus is handed over to the high priest, Caiaphas. We find him under trial. The false witnesses are brought against him. And we pick up in verses 57 through 58. The gang that had seized Jesus led him before Caius, the chief priest where the religion scholars and the leaders had assembled. Don't miss this. Peter followed at a safe distance. Until they got to the courtyard, he slipped in with the servants and the slaves and mingled among them, watching to see how things would shake out. 
I'd like to propose to you this morning that there's a great risk in distancing ourselves from Jesus. There is a great risk in distancing ourselves from Jesus. But Peter followed him at a safe distance. That word is a po. Then in fact, what Jesus is saying is that Peter literally snapped and broke fellowship with Jesus. That there was a divide and a separation between this devoted disciple Peter and his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That G Peter had chosen to distance himself, what he thought to be a safe place apart from Jesus, but he was watching what was taking place and what was transpiring to see what the end game would look like, how this thing would actually shake out. And we find Peter separating himself at a safe distance from Jesus. You know that Peter, I like Peter, and I know I'm going to be pretty tough on Peter, but by the end of the message this morning, we're going to see a lot of ourselves in this disciple uh, called Peter. But when Peter was up, Peter was up. Remember when he was on the shores of the Galilee with his brother Andrew? And not much had been talked about this man named Jesus. They had been fishing all night. These were salty sailors. They knew how to fish. They knew the right time. They knew the tide tables. They knew the bait. They knew their jobs. This was handed on generation after generation after generation. And these guys had been out all night, and they were skunked, and they were tired, and they were mending their nets. And this man, by the name of Jesus, walks up to Peter and walks up to Andrew, and he says, I'm the captain of the sea. I'd like you to put the nets in the boat, and let's go out in broad daylight. And by the way, we're not going to fish in the shallow end. We're going to go way out into the deep end. And when I tell you to let your nets down, do it. And they did. And they broke a sweat, and they were straining, and they were struggling, and the nets were ripping, and the boat nearly capsized because Peter was up, and he was with Jesus, and he listened to Jesus, and he obeyed Jesus, and he reaped the reward of doing so. Jesus had been conducting his ministry, and he pulls his disciples together on another occasion, he says, I'm curious about how people are responding to my teaching. What are they saying about my teaching? Or rather, what are they saying about who I am? And people says, well, Jesus, you know, they're responding to you in a wide range of different ways or personalities. They are saying that you're the reincarnated John the Baptist. Still others are saying that you are Elijah, the great prophet. Others are saying that you're the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. And Jesus says, enough about what the crowds are saying about me, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter, with boldness, says, you are the Christ. You are the Lord. You are the one true God. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior of humanity. And Jesus pats Peter on the back and says, boy. The only way that you could make this profession is if the Spirit of God had given you that rhema. 
The only way that you could have had the courage and the discernment and the wisdom to respond to me on a personal level is because the Spirit of God had so moved in your heart and moved the darkness and moved the blackness and removed the scales from the spiritual eyes deep within your heart and soul. This is how you can make this profession, Peter. When he was up, Peter was up. But when Peter was down, Peter was really down. He had just witnessed the great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It was more likely about 20 to 25,000 because they only counted men in those days. So it was husbands and wives and guys like me with four children could have bumped that up to about 35,000 in a hurry. And they had witnessed Jesus feeding about 30,000 people with a little boy's happy meal. The little boy says, I got a fish sandwich, some slices of apple, a gogurt, and a chocolate milk. Contemporary version. Jesus prays over it, breaks it out, gives it to his disciples. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands are being fed. And Jesus says, go ahead of me. I want you to take a little bit of a boat ride. I'll meet up with you later. They get about three and a half miles offshore. Again, these are salty sailors. These guys have sturdy, stout sea legs. You know, three to five, five to seven foot seas are not going to shake these guys. But a storm rises up upon these disciples, and they are terrified they are fearing for their life they are hugging each other like two 14 year old girls in a horror flick they are screaming and yelping and cuddling it's a good thing this wasn't on video you want to talk about a embarrassing moment for the disciples But, is that a ghost? Is that a ghost? I think I see something in this 7 to 10 foot seas and hurricane force winds. Is that a ghost? And one of them says, I think that's Jesus. I think that's Jesus. Peter gets all excited. He says, I think that's Jesus. If that's you, Jesus, just tell me to come. If that's you, Jesus, I know that I'll be safe with you. Just tell me to get out of this boat and come to you. And Jesus says, come. And to his credit, he takes a step or two or three or four. And the wind is parting his hair. The waves are crashing on. Each step becomes harder and harder and harder. And there's more at risk because he's closing the distance to Jesus, but he's leaving the safe haven of the other 11 disciples. And he begins to look at the wind and he looks at the waves and he takes his eyes off of Jesus for a fraction of a second and he sinks. And he's crying out. And when Peter is down, Peter is down. Lord, help me. Save me. I have no hope. I can't get out of this situation. God, I am at a low 
point in my life. I took my eyes off of you. I moved my heart away from you. I'm dying here, Jesus. Please, if you just stretch out your hand, you can save me. And he did. We see Peter trying to close the distance in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, Jesus is wailing and crying and wrestling over the salvation of souls for every human being that ever draw breath for a second in this world. From Adam to Eve to the very last person born before Jesus comes again. Every sin... Every lie, every adulterous act, every act of fornication, every theft, every outburst of anger, every hatred, every racist remark or thought, you name it, every sin under the heavens fell upon Jesus' shoulders in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he wrestled with that because, after all, he was pure. He was sinless. He was spotless. He was every bit a human as we are human, but he never fell prey or victim to sin. Yet he carries ours, and he no knows what awaits him, the cross. Peter tries to close the distance. At least here he's next to Jesus. But what is he doing? On three separate occasions, Jesus is nudging Peter and asking him to wake up. He's taking a cat nap in the Garden of Gethsemane. When this guy is down he is really down. Is that not a picture of our walk with Jesus Christ? I'd like to be able to say that I am in lockstep, arm in arm, hand in hand, hand in hand, taking the marching orders of Jesus right there by his side, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the month, every month of the year, for as long as I I would like to be able to have that testimony, but truth be told, I'm more like Peter. There is something within me that wants a safe distance from Jesus Christ. There is something within me that wants just enough of Jesus to feel good about myself, to feel clean, to feel forgiven, to feel like my past doesn't count against me. There's a part of me that wants just enough of Jesus that I can use that old saying, I got my ticket punched. When that heavenly train comes by my station, I'm hopping on and I'm going to the sweet by and by. You know what I'm talking about? that sense of security and safety. But this man Jesus raised a bar and he said, if any man come after me, he must what? Deny himself and take up his cross. 
and follow me. That's an altogether different relationship, is it not? That's ugly. That's messy. That's a civil war between my sinful fallen nature and the holiness and the righteousness of the one true God. That at any point in time in my life, Jesus has the right and the privilege to invade my life and say, Dave, that thought is unacceptable. The way that you spoke to your wife or to your children is unacceptable. Your thoughts about your supervisor is unacceptable. The anger over being passed over for a promotion is unacceptable. David, your thoughts and your actions and your values and your beliefs in this situation toward these people is totally unacceptable. I need some change. And I'm here to help you. And Peter was up and Peter was down. And we are up. And we are down. And I'm here to say this morning that there's a great risk in distancing ourselves from Jesus. You would have thought that Peter would have learned the importance of a personal, intimate, real relationship with the Heavenly Father. Take you back to the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus gathers the inner three. They go up to the Mount I believe it's Moses and Elijah show up. The Shekinah glory of God falls on Jesus. He lights up. He's glistening. He's glowing. He's in the fullness of his garb of heaven where the angels fall all day and all night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And these inner three see the glory of Jesus Christ and they don't want to leave the spot. And they say, let's pitch tents and never leave this place. You would have thought that would have left a lasting mark on Peter, knowing the importance of a personal, devotional time of meditation and prayer and soul-seeking and allowing the Spirit of God to search the inner recesses of his heart and his mind. You would have thought he would have learned that value in the Garden of Gethsemane. You would have thought he would have learned the value of that personal relationship when Jesus recounted before his ministry that he went out and he fasted for 40 days and then God turned him over to Satan and Satan brought a barrage of temptations against Jesus in a weak moment of being thirsty and hungry that Jesus combated Satan with the very living word of God. You would have thought Peter would have understood that I need to have a close, intimate, personal, deep, healthy, vital relationship with the living one true God. And he missed it. And he said, I need to have a safe distance between me and Jesus Christ. I'm going to roll the dice on this man named Jesus, and I'm going to wait to see how this all shakes out to see if it's worth my time and my commitments and my confessions. Another principle that we can take away from this passage is that hesitation toward the things of God will only harden our hearts. When we hesitate to do and say those things that we know God is asking us to do and say, that it hardens our hearts. You know, there are important crossroads in life where Jesus will say to us in our prayer time, 
be still and know that I'm God. I want you to be patient because I'm doing a work of preparation in your life right now. You're not ready for what I have for you. So I want you to be still and be patient. There's times in our life where we're praying about a decision. Should we move here? Should we buy this? Should we go there? Should we get involved in this? There are seasons in our life where God's Spirit simply tells us to be still, to be quiet, to be patient, and wait for his instruction and for his direction. But under no circumstances, in a moment of addressing fallacy, in a moment of standing for truth, are we to wait? Are we to hinder? Are we to be hesitant? He was waiting to see the outcome. He was waiting to see the very end of what would transpire before Caiaphas. He was dragged before the court. The Sanhedrin had sought and bought out some false witnesses. They stood before the court and they said, this man said, if we destroy this temple in three days, he'll raise it up. Well, that was blasphemy because that was a resurrection or that was an insurrection against the physical temple. That was an act of war. That was a, an act of, of, uh, of blasphemy. And they got it all confused. And the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas went on the false report of these spiritually dumb and divided people and Jesus was found guilty based upon a fixed trial stacked with false witnesses. I can only imagine that Peter at a safe distance must have taken his faith and put it on the scales and was putting Jesus on trial. Is he really who he says he is? I know we've witnessed the blind man that can now see, the mute that can now speak, Lazarus being raised from the dead, the feeding of 5,000 on a couple occasions, the calming of the sea, the Mount of Transfiguration, the lame can walk, I know we've seen all this, but can I really trust my eternal security with this man called Jesus? Right here is the real courtroom. Right here is the real trial. Right here is the false witness of your fallen, sinful nature. Right here is the Holy Spirit of God saying, you can trust him. You can stake your life on this man called Jesus. He will never lie. He will never set you up for failure. He will never misguide you. He will never use you. He will never abuse you. He will never be rude to you. He will never do anything other than love you, accept you, encourage you, and lift you up to be the man or woman that he went to the cross to die for. You can lay your life 
down now in the nasty here and near as well as for all of eternity in the sweet by and by. You can bank on it. Jesus is a sure winner. And that's the trial that was going on in Peter's heart and in his soul. He's mixing it up and he's mingling with the servants and the slaves. Again, he's at a safe distance. And a servant girl, about 11, 12, 13, walks up to him and says, Hey, aren't you a follower of Jesus? I think I've seen you walking into town with Jesus. And he gets stupid. His legs buckle. A 13-year-old girl asking him if he's a follower of Jesus. And he buckles and he falls under the weight of that question. And he says, no. We've all got beards. We all are wearing burlap. We all look the same. It's not me. A little bit of time progresses. And another servant girl comes up to him and says, I really think you're a follower of Jesus Christ. I, I really think I've seen, I think I saw you come out of the upper room that last supper. I think I saw you walking through town and going out to the Mount of, I know, I know for certain you're a follower of Jesus Christ, aren't you? Aren't you? No! Again, he acts confused, he acts dumb, he acts disoriented, and he flat out denies the fact that he's a follower of Jesus Christ. And then on a third occasion, if once wasn't enough, if twice wasn't enough, three times to convict him, three times to remind him that before the rooster would crow forth the dawn, that you, in fact, would deny me three times on a third occasion, it's not enough just to say, no. It's not enough just to say, leave me alone. I don't know this guy. I have nothing to do with Jesus. I'm a, I'm a fisherman. There's my brother. We're fishermen. Leave me alone. The third time, he curses God. And he curses the woman, and he uses profanity, and he takes the Lord's name in vain. And if we weren't in church, and I felt the liberty to say so, I'd tell you exactly what Peter said on the third time. You wouldn't like it. It's that disturbing. It's that profane. The emotion in Peter's heart and soul at this point is so deep, so raw, so rigid. It's tearing his heart and his soul apart over this. He's followed this man for three years. And he's come to a place in his life where he's cursing him. He's profaning him. Just a few short hours from being stretched out and nailed to a cross. He's profaning and cursing the one true God. Each time he was asked, his voice got louder 
and louder. And every time he said no, his heart got harder and harder and harder to the point that he denied the very existence of Jesus Christ, the man that he had spent three years living, eating, walking, breathing, and serving with. To me, that is astonishing. But I've been there. We think that with time, decisions for God become easier, but that's a fallacy. Because we know that as we age, we get into a rut, and it gets harder and harder and harder to say yes to spiritual matters. A survey recently released a few years ago stated that 93% of decisions made for Jesus Christ come before the age of 15. 93% of decisions made to follow Jesus Christ come before the age of 15. A most recent survey said that 95% of all decisions to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior come before the age of 13. Tell me how important our children's ministry here at New River really is. Tell me how important the middle school ministry is here at New River. Tell me how important the youth ministry here at New River really is. Tell me where the time and the energy and the budget should be directed in any church. If 95% of all decisions for Christ come before the age of 15. Lastly, in closing, we deceive ourselves when we seek the benefits of Christianity without a relationship with Jesus. We deceive ourselves when we seek the benefits of Christianity without the relationship. John recalls the words of Jesus, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciple." If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciple. The word here is used for a journey. It's not a quick off-the-cuff decision. It's a journey. It's a lifelong relationship. It's about someone taking up residence in your household and being welcomed as a guest, as a family member, never asked to be removed. Never asking to leave. There's a comfort, there's a welcoming, there's an intimacy. Listen, here's the real danger in keeping Jesus at a safe distance. Here's the real danger at keeping Jesus at a safe distance you may not really know him after all the real danger to
to making a decision over and over and over again is that our heart gets harder and harder and harder that we choose to keep a safe distance from this guy, Jesus, who periodically, by way of the Holy Spirit, comes into our life and says, today's the day, and you say no. Today's the day, and you say no. Today's the day, no, maybe, later on, I'm busy, come back and visit me later on, Jesus. Today's the day. The downside, or the real danger to keeping Jesus at a distance is that we may not really know him after all. This is coming from a guy that cannot remember a day not being in church. This is from a guy that grew up and went to every Sunday school class, every vacation Bible school, every youth group, every meeting, you name it. I ate the pizza, I had the lollipops, I went on the camp house, I went fishing, I went skiing, I hung around Christians for year after year after year after year. And when I turned 17 and I moved out of my father and my mother's house, I realized that I had always kept Jesus at a very safe distance. I'm going to tell you something. Keeping Jesus at a safe distance doesn't help you when you hit the college campus and the frat houses. Keeping Jesus at a safe distance doesn't help you with your coworkers when they all want to go and do things and go to places that you know you ought not to go and do. Keeping Jesus at a safe distance eventually shows itself and rears itself in an ugly monster called sin, and it overwhelms you, and it consumes you, and it enslaves you, and it entraps you, and you find yourself guilt-ridden and filled with shame and doubt and no hope. And for the very first time in your life, you realize, I have stiffed-armed Jesus my entire life. And look where it has taken me to today. Don't kid yourself. And I am not here to offend anybody under any circumstances. But I want to encourage you, if you've always kept Jesus at a safe distance, now and today is the time and the place to ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? More importantly is this, does Jesus know me. One of the hardest scriptures in all of the Bible is that well, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. I never knew you. I wish I could say differently, but I never knew you. I tried to get your attention. 
I so arranged the circumstances in your life. I so arranged the failure, the hardship, the illness. I so arranged these troubling circumstances and situations in your life because I was trying to whisper these words to you. I love you. I want to know you. You desperately need to know me. As we close this morning, I'd like for each and every one of us here this morning to put Jesus on trial. To consider the evidence To consider the facts, the considering of God's word and what it says, that it's alive and active. To consider the fact that God's Holy Spirit right now is picking, prodding, poking, nudging. You may very well be sitting in your seat still and silent, but this is shaking like a palm tree on the ocean in a Category 4 hurricane. And you don't need to know what that is. Let me tell you what that is. That is God's Holy Spirit saying, I love you and you need me and I want to know you. I love you, you need me, I want to know you. I love you, you need me, I want to know you. I love you, you need me, I want to know you. This is the moment. And this is the time. And we're going to have some wonderful people come forward here that are willing to hold your hand, to answer some questions, to spend time with you in prayer to answer all the questions you have. But this is the moment. This is your time. He is picking up the pen with the Lamb's Book of Life, and his hand is trembling and shaking, and he is waiting for you to close the distance so he can write your name in that book and all of heaven cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Today we've added just another to the heavenly household of God. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God for who you are and what you represent and how deeply you love us and how deep your grace and your mercy flows. God, we may feel this morning that we're a hundred miles away, that we have distant you so far that you couldn't possibly want us, that you couldn't possibly love us. Father, I pray for that individual that they just take one step just one step this morning, Jesus, and that you cover the other 99. We pray, God, that we would have a sense of how important it is for us to close this distance. 
to have a vital, healthy, vibrant, personal relationship with you and how that makes all the difference here and now and for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray.